Welcome to Pull Up A Chair. I'm Bina Mehta, the chair of KPMG in the UK. And in each episode, I'll be chatting to some of the world's most influential business leaders and thinkers on sustainable growth, what it means to them and why it matters. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Andy Haldane, previously Chief Economist at the Bank of England and now Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts. Andy is Chair of the Government's Leveling Up Advisory Council. He's described Leveling Up as one of the biggest economic and social challenges of our time. And he's a passionate advocate for improving numeracy across the UK. Andy Haldane, please pull up a chair. So Andy, I'm delighted that you've joined us on Pull Up A Chair today. Before I kick off on some of the questions, I'd like to ask you a very simple question. What does sustainable growth mean to you? Well, thank you, Bina, and great to be pulling up a chair with you <laughs> too. Um, sustainable growth, well, at the simplest level, I think it is about uh, progress. People feeling their lives are improving over time. Um, that becoming a norm, a social norm, that over time you can expect be a bit better off to live a, a bit better life than, than your parents and grandparents. I think in, in more technical terms, um, it is of course growth that lasts. We've seen dashes for growth in the past that peter out quickly. That is unsustainable growth. So it's growth that lasts. It's growth that is inclusive. We know uh, if it's only a subset of society that's progressing, that's benefiting, whose income is rising, that eventually that will run into the buffers because the social fabric gets torn, the political acceptability of actions are reduced, and therefore growth isn't sustained. So lasting, inclusive. I suppose a third element, the first two are pretty obvious, the, the third isn't. And I think it's really important just at the moment, which is that growth is regenerative. That is to say, you know, we had sustained growth uh, in the latter part of the 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, but it came at the cost of being extractive of our planet, chewing up huge amounts of natural capital. We can't afford to do that in the 21st century. So looking to this century, we need a model of growth that doesn't just sustain natural capital in the environment, doesn't just sustain social capital in our communities, doesn't just sustain human capital among people, but seeks to replenish it, seeks to regenerate that capital, human, social, and natural. So for me, sustainable growth also needs, in the 21st century, unlike the 20th, 19th, and 18th, also to be genuinely regenerative. And that carries super important implications, Bina, for business, for society, and for government. So I just wanted to pick up on that, Andy. In December 22, you were quoted in an article as saying, for the first time, probably since the Industrial Revolution, health and well-being are in retreat. So when you talk about regeneration, as well as lasting, as well as um, inclusion, do you think that the sustainable growth that we talk about can meet the needs of people 
planet and profit? I think it has to, Bina. I think it's not a nice to have, it's an absolutely have to have as things uh, stand. I think that's well within our compass. Mm. Um, what we found over the course of history uh, is that we can find ways of doing things that involve fewer resources. That's what productivity rises means, doing more with less. And typically we've measured that in terms of uh, less people, the amount we produce per head of population. But we need increasingly to think of it in terms of uh, the resource that is our planet as well as the resource that is our people. And the same trick that worked uh, in those earlier centuries, innovation, technological improvement, getting more from less, needs to apply with even greater force in the 21st century when the resourcing question isn't just people, mm. but is planet as well. And we know, you know, we are not just social animals, but we are entrepreneurial animals as well. And that's why that wellspring of innovation technology will be the route to redemption and reducing any false trade-offs between people, place and planet. I think absolutely. Just if you think about the pace of change that we're going through, whether it's technological or whether it's, you know, in terms of innovation, where we are today is leaps and bounds where we were previously, right? So, you, as you say, these yeah. are the solutions for the future. And as an economist, you're very well versed in long term uh, uh, thinking as much as the short term sort of challenges. And having had 32 years at the Bank of England, you've seen many periods of growth as well as contraction. Mm. So how do you feel about the long-term prospects of the UK and in terms of growth in particular? Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a timely moment to be asking that question because as you know, Bina, um, there is a large amount of pessimism um, just around at the moment, not just in the UK, but, but globally about economic prospects as we face what could be a second year of, of growth being anemic or possibly even negative, mm -hmm. and with inflation remaining well above what we'd wish it to be, the cost of living crisis. So that sense of pessimism um, is palpable, and you can see why. Because here in the UK, we've gone through a protracted period, at least 15 years now, of subpar growth. Um, and indeed, even the years prior to the decades prior to that, uh, growth had not risen at the same rates it had, not just in our earlier history, but in relative to other countries around the world. So if your lens was a backward-looking lens, there'd be a real reason for mm -hmm. fatalism right now about our future growth. Now, what I'd say is it need not be so. Uh, it is absolutely within our gift to lift the spirits of both people and of the economy as a whole. There is no secret uh, to the recipe for growth. We know what it takes. Ultimately, it is about investing in those various capitals we touched upon just mm -hmm. a minute ago, the skills of people the regeneration of communities, what sometimes goes by the name leveling yeah. out, we might get onto that, uh, and doing so in a way that supports the, the planet. Um, so it's not that the recipe is a secret one, 
it is a well-developed recipe over many centuries. We just need to put together the raw ingredients and make it happen. And if we do that, there'd be no reason why we should be fatalistic about the UK's future. There's all sorts, when you travel around the UK, when I travel around the UK, there are loads of fantastic businesses, loads of fantastic universities, loads of fantastic communities. It's not that we've lost the recipe, it's that it hasn't been applied wholesale across the country and economy. And if we do that, there's no reason we can't sweep away that fatalism. I love, I love the way you articulate those raw ingredients. The investing in capital, the skills, the regeneration of communities that really will support growth and support the planet. So universities, businesses, I'm absolutely on the same page as you in terms of the amazing army of innovators we have across the UK that will be um, the engine for growth for us. But I just wanted to pick up on that. You talk about that ecosystem, the ecosystem of health, education, and we'll come on to some of the things that you do. You know, you have been and are continuing um, your involvement in the levelling up agenda. You were chairing the advisory council there. Um, it is one of the biggest economic and social challenges, your words, not mine, um, of our time. And you've articulated some of the context behind that, you know, subpar growth. So we actually are catching up as well as progressing. Could you sort of elaborate on some of the bigger, the biggest challenges and priorities maybe that you see for us over the next few years around levelling up? Yeah, so um, it is one of the signature challenges um, in the UK. Um, but the flip of that, Bina, is it's also one of the signature opportunities for the UK because we know uh, there is huge amounts of latent economic energy in communities across the UK. Um, that's why we've seen widen, widening spatial disparities between places doing well and places doing less well. And the trick here is to unlock the potential in places doing less well. This isn't a question, levelling up, of just shifting resources from those doing well, those places doing well, to those places doing less well. It's not a redistributional question. It's not mm -hmm. a pure social justice question. Mm -hmm. It's actually a question of economic efficiency, improved potential, growing the pie, if you like. Uh, and that's, for me, why this is so important societally. The route to growth, one route to growth, is to unlock the potential in people and in places where currently it is too constrained. That's the objective. And it, it meets both the social, social justice objective and mm -hmm. a growth and economic efficiency objective. How are we to do that? What should be our priorities in making good on that? Well, I had a hand uh, in the levelling up white paper that the government put out last year. It was quite a lengthy document. I assume all of your listeners have read it. Uh, but in case not, I can summarise yeah. 350 pages in a single sentence uh, for them. What it sought to define, Bina, was a new model of government and a new model of governance. So let me unpack that a little bit. So the new model of government was uh, to say, look, um, Whitehall has not solved this problem historically of levelling up the country, of shrinking regional disparities. Uh, why is that? 
Well, one of the reasons that hasn't happened is simply because Whitehall hasn't focused sufficiently on it. It hasn't had the spatial awareness of how its monies are being spent. So if we are to make a success of this levelling up thing, we need the Whitehall machine to be focused fairly and squarely in its actions, in its decisions on doing this well. Mm -hmm. So rather than all the money for R&D going to the Golden Triangle, it needs to be spread elsewhere around the country. Instead of all the housing investment going in the southeast, it needs to go elsewhere. Instead of all the cultural spending being in the cultural supercluster that is London, it needs to be spread elsewhere. Around the all this is simple stuff. But listen, the even more important aspect than what Whitehall does, what central government does, is what everyone else does. And that's the new model of governance. That we need to uh, empower and enable local leaders mm -hmm. to take control of their own destiny, to be given more powers, to be given more monies, to go forward and regenerate their place. They know how to do that much better than could any Whitehall uh, Mandarin. And to be clear, by local leaders, I don't just mean local government. I mean local business leaders. Mm -hmm. I mean local community leaders. You know, success in regenerating a place com comes from reaching out and partnering across the public, private, and civil society sectors. Each and every one of them needs to be playing a leadership role. And the role of central government is to empower finance and enable them to do that. That's the new model of governance, and that's the thing that will deliver what levelling up. So I just want to pick up on that sort of trio of business, government and society. Do you think, and I think I know the answer to this, do you think that we're working as collaboratively as we could be or should be um, to address some of these big challenges facing us? I think there's been progress, and a lot of it actually, been over the last uh, 10 to 20 years. Uh, a greater acknowledgement, both of the power of partnership, public, private, mm -hmm. civil society. Um, by the way, odd that we forgot that, that is the right model to make things happen. I mean, that has been the model that has sustained progress yeah. in the UK and globally for several centuries, but better late than never, we've realighted on this partnership model of change. And I've seen it from businesses too. Often uh, under the purpose banner, we are seeing businesses large and small uh, have a much more uh, rounded, plural, uh, expansive, ambitious, I'd say, uh, sense of, uh, of their purpose, of their objectives, of who it is they're delivering for, mm -hmm. beyond their staff, into customers and clients, communities, indeed wider society. A business is a legal construct, but first and foremost, it's a social institution. It's a social construct, and social acceptability is crucial if business is, be, is to be sustained. So great that business is leaning into this. I think there are lots of examples of great businesses doing this very well. I think there are lots of examples of, of great communities doing this well. Interestingly, those communities doing it well think the West Midlands, think Greater Manchester. What is their model? Why is their model successful? It's because they've lent into and made a virtue of the partnership, mm 
mm. between the public, the private, and the civil society sectors. They've got their strategy, and it's anchored in that partnership way of working. And you know what we want is more of that in communities, in businesses, working to that same template. This goes to the heart of purpose, an alignment of objectives, goals for communities, business and government. And you are a visiting professor um, across a number of universities. Does this come up in the, the, the information that you're sharing with those people that come to listen to your lectures? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, um, yeah, the academic side of things, universities, colleges, um, are crucial not just repositories of innovation and, and learning and teaching, but also crucial anchor institutions in places. You know, if we are to regenerate places, we need enough of those anchor institutions to make the change happen. And if we are to forge ahead as a country, we need to push in the frontier of innovation and technology, and universities are an engine of that. So among the institutions that need to form partnerships, universities are a crucial element in that partnership. We've seen that. We've seen universities in the UK transform themselves. Mm. I think back 30 years, Bina, quite academically, quite narrowly academically focused universities then. I look at our universities, our fantastic universities in the UK now, and the bridge to business is that at the core, the existential core of what they are doing, partnering with KPMG or whatever it might be to make change happen, to turn research ideas into businesses, into practical interventions. That's very much, I think, in the DNA of our academic sector. And both they and business and the economy are stronger from them nurturing those clusters. I absolutely agree with you. You know, as you said, we've, we've got partnerships with a number of universities to really accelerate that pace of change that we can then deliver for our clients. So we're seeing it firsthand in our organisation. So I absolutely agree with you. You talked about forging ahead as a country. And whilst a lot of what we're talking about is the constructs of the UK economy and making sure that there's improvement of wealth and prosperity across the country, we as a country still need to maintain our competitiveness, right? And so we talk about trade, we talk, and you talked about innovation, we talk about investment, investment to help us grow. Do you see any challenges around that that you know, we should be facing into um, to make sure that we are at, on the best footing to maintain and continue to grow on an international scale? Yeah, I mean, firstly, on the, the diagnosis, you're absolutely right. We know from the evidence very clearly that one of the key drivers of productivity and therefore of pay and, and, and well-being and income uh, is your openness to international competition. Mm -hmm. That is a driver uh, of improvements in productivity. This is crucial to us growing as a, doing well. I mean, the good news here is we do have a set of sectors, financial and professional services, one of them. Uh, where the UK is genuinely internationally, not just competitive, but, but leading. There are a number of others. It's true, for example, of the creative industries, although we don't shout about that anything like as much as we uh, could uh, and should. So there are a, um, a set of sectors where we genuinely play a leading role. I'd love us to be doing even more to nurture those sectors 
to nurture their footprint, not just domestically, but internationally. You might call this an industrial strategy. Most of the countries around the world do have an industrial strategy. So did we, actually. Uh, Theresa May rekindled this in 2017. In fact, I, I chaired um, the council that oversaw that industrial strategy up until the point where it was abolished a couple of years uh, later. I think whatever you call it, mm. Bina, plan beats no plan, strategy beats no strategy. And we need to understand as a country those sectors that, that are really smashing it internationally and to seek a strategy that nurtures and grows those uh, over time because that way exports lie, that way income lies, that way productivity lies, and that way a larger part pie lies. So the global part of this could not be more important yeah. just at the moment. I agree with the clusters conversation we've just had earlier together with this around helping businesses grow internationally is really is sustainable growth and prosperity for all. Right? Um, I'd just like to move on if it's okay to your current role um, at the RSA and when you think about unlocking growth in the U UK. I know the RSA explores some really fascinating topics. Um, can you share maybe one or two that you're really grappling with today um, that sort of plays to what we've been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Well, RSA, uh, Royal Society of Arts, allowed to give its full title, uh, Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. Mm -hmm. uh, almost 270 years old, an enlightenment institution. Um, and the idea is, how can we bring together the very best across disciplines, across sectors, across professions, to nurture social change? That's the game the RSA has been in for more than 250 years, including, you know, the first, were the architects of the conservation program globally, the architects of trade fairs, the architects of state examinations in schools, to give a few ideas of how we've straddled sectors to affect social change. Mm -hmm. That's the agenda past. What's the agenda future for a social change organisation uh, like uh, the RSA? Well, picking up the threads of a couple of things we said earlier on, Bina, one thing I'd love us to try and rethink for the 21st century is the education and learning journey we all need to be on. That will need to be a rather different education and learning journey than that which we've been on yeah. for the preceding two centuries. That served us pretty well on the whole uh, in raising the levels of our core skills, including numeracy, something that you and I have a passion uh, for. Uh, but what was fit for purpose in the 19th and 20th century will not be fit for purpose in the 21st. Why do I say that? So far, our education system does a very good job of nurturing academic-like type skills in young people. Success in the 21st century will require us to nurture not just academic, yeah. uh, but vocational, interpersonal, a much broader set of skills than has ever been true. If for no other reason than the fact that actually robots and AI will do much of what's currently taught academically. And also, the um, so one part was the academic, second was the in young people. Yeah. That too will need to 
be fundamentally rechanged. We need to make a reality of lifelong learning. So that is a pretty much, that, that's an appending of the educational model of the past two centuries. One that focuses on a broader set of skills than the academic and one that operates on a lifelong basis. And for me, that will require a fundamentally different set of institutions and infrastructures to make a reality of that much more digital alongside physical, uh, much more bite-sized chunks of learning than we've had in the past rather than great blocks at the start of our lives. And also, I think, a recognition Bina, that um, people learn in different ways. Mm. There are different styles of learning. You and I lucked out in life's lottery because what was taught in schools, the method of teaching in schools, suited our learning style. Someone stood at the front of a room, chalk and talk, back totally. at us. <laughs> we wrote it down, uh, remembered some of it, <laughs> regurgitated it and did well in exams, right? That's broadly the way that the system works right now. For many people, that chalk and talk approach, the examination process, is a massive turn off. That's not because they're fundamentally less intelligent or less able or have less potential. Now, historically, we have been constrained by numbers of schools and numbers of teachers. Mm. In future, that constraint will be relaxed. There's no reason why by making greater use of digital technologies and AI, we can absolutely personalize someone's learning journey to tailor it to their learning style and therefore to unlock their potential in a way that hasn't been possible previously. Now that is a world away mm. from where education model is right now. One of the roles of the RSA is to think about not best practice, but next practice. Mm. What is next practice for education and learning? And for me, those would be the contours of next practice in education and learning. And we can do, help deliver that. I love that idea of next practice. How would you articulate that in the context of education and the skills that we're going to need? Hmm. Well, first of all, um, there's a reason, only one reason, why humans have progressed and all the animals have been uh, progressed much, much more slowly. And that one reason is imagination. It's the human capacity for imagination and then to make the imagined real that accounts for what we have progressed fast and every other animal has progressed slow. And that's super relevant now to our education system. If we are to progress, we of course, therefore, need to be nurturing imagination and creativity. Does our current education system nurture creativity and imagination the way it could and should? I would, I, I suspect probably not. Could we, should we rethink, reformulate our model of learning in a way that is nurturing of creativity, that is nurturing of imagination that doesn't have people self-censoring, fearful of not passing an exam, but willing to experiment, willing to act in an entrepreneurial way, to be mm -hmm. creative, to let loose, let, let loose their imagination. That's the system we will need to an even greater extent 
in the 21st century. And that's therefore a different model of education to that which we have right now. I love the idea of next uh, generation, you know, in terms of learning. Um, how do you think leadership's changed? There's lots that um, institutions like the bank has direct control over. So your mortgage rates being a case in point, and part of my job previously was making decisions on interest rates. There are things like that where you control the lever and you move it around uh, periodically to hopefully get the economy moving, keep inflation in check. But there are many more levers that don't directly lie within your hands, whether you're the Bank of England or you're a government department. Uh, and where your influence it comes from persuasion and from partnership rather than from direct control. And that's a rather different model of leadership and calls mm -hmm. for a rather different approach, a rather different style of leadership. Uh, when I was at the bank, one of the things I did was to set up some citizens panels, uh, partly to harvest information from a wider cohort and community than was the case previously, but also to try and exercise uh, the listening muscle at the Bank of England. So we were good at talking, turning up, giving our speech, answering a few questions, and then clearing off back to London. But relatively less good at coming along without an agenda, without a speech, and just listening. Active listening. And the reason for that uh, is because, you know, if you are to affect that lasting change, that sustainable change, you have to take people with you. And they need to have some sense of being engaged with and indeed helping shape outcomes. And this is one way of doing this. It's a fundamentally different approach culturally yeah. to the command and control of Bank of England and government in the past. To recognise that change comes from acting in partnership across public, private and civil society sectors. And you are but one cog in uh, that machine. For me, this is a different model of government and governance. Mm -hmm. will require, therefore, a different style of leadership among people like me and those uh, elsewhere in the, in the public sector. And, and to be honest, um, you know, my learning is that although this is a, a bit of a cultural shift, it was certainly for the Bank of England, it took a bit of a heave-ho to get those citizens panels in place. Uh, but having done it, nothing could be more yeah. uh, enriching and nothing could be more empowering. If I had one learning over the last 15 years, you know, the biggest by far would be the following, that the best way, the most effective way, the most lasting and sustained way of affecting influence and change is to begin by giving away power. If you start by giving it away, by listening before you speak, there's every chance that that power will be passed back across the table at the end of the conversation. Uh, and that's a lesson I learned at the Bank of England. It's one I carry forward at uh, the RSA, and I hope it's one that in the fullness of time will be reflected across business and elsewhere in government. I hope so too. I hope so. I love that concept to give your power away first. Um, 
I just want to move on to something that we're both very passionate about, numeracy. And I've been involved in numeracy for a couple of years now. You have put a lot of energy and effort in behind the numeracy campaign. Why was it important to you? Well, at a sort of macro level, um, you know, at a nation state level, we are an enumerate nation. I mean, the bald facts, as you know, um, speak to that. You know, half of the working age population with maths no better than that of a primary school child. We ought to be doing better. We can do better because we know other countries are doing better than us. But the reason it really um, resonates with me is, is not just that. It's not just that it's holding us back as a nation. It's that it's holding back the lives of millions and millions of people. This isn't just about skills in some arid sense, doing well at work. Numeracy is getting in the way of people navigating their everyday lives. Mm. If you're facing up, as many millions of people are right now, to a searing cost of living crisis, wondering how you'll make ends meet, not having the tools of the trade to make sense of that is a horrible additional barrier to be up against. And we must, must, must do a better job on that front, not just to improve people's livelihoods, but more fundamentally to improve their lives, to helping navigate the rapids uh, of everyday life, making ends meet, making their money go better, making wise investment choices about saving today for payoff tomorrow. So that's really why it sort of stirs my soul in a way I know it does you as well. Thank you for that. Andy. Right, I'm going to ask you if you can look back, not that long ago clearly Andy, um, to the younger Andy Haldane, <laughs> what bit of advice would you be giving yourself? Yeah, that was a long time ago, Bina. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose probably like many young people, um, and rightly actually, I was, I, was, I was almost certainly slightly impatient and headstrong back then. So I'd probably tell myself to be a little bit more patient. I don't regret being a bit impatient, by the way, really. But, you know, truth be told, the very best things take time to, to take root and mm. to make happen, to convince enough people. You know, I suppose the headstrong young me would have said, I've had a brilliant idea. Um, why can't I make it happen? It's the sense that you bring people with you, uh, I think is really important. That would be a learning um, uh, from the bitter experience of how long it takes sometimes to get things over the line. But the flip of that, actually, Bina, would be that you can get things over the line. That at some moments, you don't quite know ever when, the window of opportunity opens wide. And all that preparation, all that patient preparation you put in can then pay off big time. Mm. And at that point, you go for it. You really go for it. And those moments of opportunity of the window, the Overton window opening, tend often to be around crises. So in a way, I've been blessed through my career, odd sort of blessing, uh, but it's been punctuated, pockmarked by crises. There are moments of great challenge, but also moments of great opportunity to rewrite the rule book, to rethink afresh, to have the debate orbit a different planet than it has previously. And that's where the patient preparation pays off. And I'd, I'd have told my young self that um, don't underestimate just how much 
You can change the world if you pick your moment right. If you do your patient preparation um, and then wait for the moment to make it stick. So global financial crisis, classic case in point. I've lucked out in having spent 10 years patiently preparing for a different way of conceiving mm -hmm. the financial system, which when the crisis broke and people's lost their bearings, you then pour in your ideas and before you know it, you've changed the planet around which the debate is orbiting in a fundamental way that could not have happened without the patient preparation, but also could not have happened without the crisis having happened. So that would be among the advice I'd give to my young self, I think. I would never have visualized you as impatient because all the experience I've had working with you is I would say that you were patient and purposeful. I am now, Bina, but you you know, now. it seems as a 20-year-old, you'd have been shocked. <laughs> That's great. Um, right, one final question for you. Um, we've talked a lot about sustainable growth in the economic, societal sense. How do you sustain yourself? Some of it's the obvious stuff, same thing that I know sustains you, so family's obviously important as a sort of antidote to, mm. the, to, to the daily uh, challenges. Not that family without challenges, but, you know, um, um, yeah, in my own case, you know, watching rather too much rubbish telly uh, is a way of sort of detoxifying the brain. Uh, sport, these days much more watching than playing, regrettably. I'm going to say travel, but not in the sense of going off to foreign climes. Maybe COVID, actually COVID taught me a huge amount. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge introvert, right? Um, but hadn't realized till COVID how much I really, really, really missed human interaction, not just for its own sake, but as a source of, as a, as a wellspring of ideas and creativity and making things happen. So I'm loving, 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 just getting out and about. I don't mean, as I say, traveling the four corners of the planet. I actually mean getting on a train and going north, south, east or west, meeting different faces, mm. hearing different perspectives, picking up ideas about this, that, the other. I've been going for about 10 years now uh, to the seaside, the Kent seaside coast. Um, seaside's great, actually. That's a great antidote. That's a great sustaining factor. One of the many things I like, one is the calming influence of the sea, but also in the 10 years I've been going there, no one, having you know, hundreds and hundreds of conversations, no one has ever asked me you know, what I do for a living. And I love that fact. That's just not relevant to them when they're having a conversation. Uh, and it's just that, you know, the kind of humanizing of that, humanizing effect of that, uh, that serves as a kind of fantastic antidote to the day job uh, and a sort of source of sustaining me, I hope, replenishing me, I hope, regenerating Regenerating, me, I hope. yes. Uh, in a way that, that leaves me, I hope, a bit better equipped to tackle the next set of challenges, of which there are many right now. So talking about challenges, I'd just like to say thank you very much for joining me today because what I leave with is an optimism around the opportunity for us. You said challenges, you've talked about some of the challenges, you've also given us all a bit of a glimpse into the opportunities, right? You've talked about lasting, 
growth, you've talked about inclusive growth, that's inclusive not just within a business but in the communities we work. But the word I think we take away from this podcast is regeneration and what it means in the, in the literal sense of individual, business, governmental, societal. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, Bina, it's been wonderful as ever uh, <laughs> to join you and to have this, uh, what I hope is an ongoing conversation about uh, regeneration and indeed the power of imagination as a source of that regeneration, which we crucially, crucially, crucially need right now. Thanks for joining me today on Pull Up A Chair, whether you're at home, at work, or somewhere in between. I do hope you'll join me next time for more insights from business leaders and thinkers on how to unlock sustainable growth that delivers to the needs of people, planet, and profit. Goodbye. <laughs>